welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. There we go. That was my intro. Thank you, Ruth, so much. We, we have just been felt so welcomed and so at home here in Australia. Um, it, it's, it's, it's just really been a blessing to us. It is our first time here, and all I can tell you is um, you've served some of the best food we've had anywhere, so whoever, wherever else we go has got to meet that standard. I mean, even just the snack between sessions was like, that was pretty good. Yeah, right. Every, every one of your churches d- does it to that level of quality is what I'm assuming, because that's all I've seen. So that's just what you have to live up to there. So no intimidation whatsoever. Oh, it is wonderful to do that. Let, let's, let's jump into it because we do, um, I, I want to get into uh, this, this session and then get you out in time for a good lunch together. And um, we're hoping to have enough time at the end for the Q&A, depending on how, uh, how everything goes. Um, let me tell a little bit more of my story again. The similarity to the Browns' story and to many of our stories uh, is, is really there's a lot of overlap. Um, so when last we left my story, our church had collapsed from 400 to well under 100 and sometimes under 50 for no reason anybody could understand. So why did it collapse? Um, over the years, we've done some assessment of it, and uh, there are three things that we've discovered one at a time over the years. And uh, one of the first things we discovered for the collapse was um, during that time in which we were growing from 200 to 400, I was miserable. And I didn't know I was miserable, because how can a pastor be miserable when their church is doubling in two years? But what happened was I'm made the shift that you have to make when, you, when your church goes through, again, what they call the 200 barrier. You cannot pastor the same way under 200 as you do over, and that happens somewhere between 150 to 300, depending on a lot of circumstances. But we definitely blew through whatever that barrier is. And so when you're smaller, you can be more of a, of a shepherd, and then you have to become more of a manager. You have to move from being a pastor to being an overseer. And I made those shifts. So I stopped being as much of a hands-on pastor and started overseeing a staff who then took on a lot of those situations. And I spent 90% of my ministry hours, at least 90% of my ministry hours, doing things that I don't like to do, that I'm not good at, and that suck my soul dry. I spent 90% of my ministry hours trying to raise funds, trying to find a new facility, looking to hire staff, fighting with City Hall, fundraising, all of those things that you have to do when your church is in that kind of growth mode and when you get to those numbers. You have to do that. I did it and was miserable at it because that's not my calling. I am called to do pastoral ministry in ways that suit a small church environment, not in ways that suit a large church environment. And my guess, and more than a guess now, it's been some study and a lot of conversations, my experience now has been that I think the reason most of our churches are small is because most pastors are called to operate in a pastoral role using gifts that are more suited to a small church environment than a big one. We are told that we have to adapt a different type of leadership style, which is true. If your church gets to a certain point, you have to make that shift in order for the church to become bigger. The question we don't ask is, but is every church destined to and called to become bigger, or are we simply, is Jesus simply multiplying a whole bunch of smaller venues that suit the leadership styles and gifting of most pastors? Because if you introduce most, if you interview most pastors, and I've interviewed hundreds at this point, and ask them, describe what you felt called to do when you were called to do pastoral ministry. And most of them will describe things like, you know, I wanted to preach, I wanted to counsel people, I wanted to pastor the people well, we wanted to, you know, put a team, teams together to go out and reach, reach the people in the, uh, 
in the community, and most of what they'll describe are small church gifts. Very few pastors will say, when I was called to pastor, I felt called to build larger buildings, to manage a multiple uh, a multiple person staff. They, they seldom describe to you the gifts that are required at larger sizes. Now, I'm grateful for those who are called to do those things, because if every pastor pastored like me, we'd all be worshiping in mud huts. <laughs> Nothing would ever get built. So I'm profoundly grateful for those who are called to build structures and put together large organizations and to have large churches. Profoundly grateful for those gifts. I simply don't have those gifts. So it didn't fit me. That was one reason. The second reason that our church collapsed when it did was because when we were growing at that pace uh, from 200 to 400 in under two years, we were not having any more conversions or baptisms than, ever, than before. It was almost entirely transfer growth and not conversion growth. So we weren't seeing more people get saved. We were just entertaining bored Christians. For a while, we had a better Sunday morning religious stage show than most of the other churches of our size around. We were the hot church in town for a while, so a whole bunch of people showed up. And then when another church got hotter and was doing it in a, in a, in a better way or whatever they liked more, the people who showed up all left and took half of our crew with them. So it wasn't, it wasn't conversion growth, it was transfer growth, which to me then is not church growth, because the only church growth that is truly the growth of the church is if Christians are increasing as a percentage of the population, not simply because a church is getting larger. A lot of what we call church growth is not growth, it's consolidation. We're just clumping Christians into larger groups. That's not growth, that's just consolidation. So we weren't growing, we were consolidating, and then we lost that. And then thirdly, you remember how I described when we said we got to 400 and we said we need to hire a staff for 600? We had to do that because our staff was exhausted because we'd gone from the same number of staff pastoring 200 people to pastoring 400 people. We doubled the number of people we were pastoring and hadn't doubled our pastoral staff. But we were also pastoring in a way, and we'll go over this um, in, I think, the third session. We were pastoring in a way that I don't really believe is biblical. We weren't really pastoring them we were enabling them. We were, we were doing all the ministry for them. And we'll talk about that adjustment in session three. And so uh, people have asked, well, if your church grew fast today, what would happen? Would you stop it? Would you split off? What would you do? And my answer is this. If our church were to have the same kind of growth now, because now we're up at close to 200 again. We're at 170 to 180, so we're on the high end of small now. If we were to double in the next two years, first of all, this ministry of mine would be ruined I may be the only pastor in the world whose side ministry would be wrecked if my church got too big. Um, so go, keep it down, keep it down. I got books to sell. No, it's not. <laughs> but we could double in the next two years and not hire a single a staff member from the outside because we have worked over the last seven to ten years of discipling our own people and training up leadership from within which again, we'll be talking about, that'll be our last session. How do we do that? How do we bring our, our leaders along? So that gives you an idea of why it happened for us anyway. So during that season when I was having that collapse and I, I left it for the 40 days and so on, leading up to that, I would go to our denominational uh, group and we got a lot of denominations here today. Uh, mine happens to be uh, Assemblies of God. So it's uh, the ACC folks. You're my Brothers and well, you're all my brothers and sisters in Christ, but you're you're, you're my you're my cousins by by law or whatever that is, um, the same kind of a group. So we would go to our annual council, and every time uh, the leader of our uh, of Southern California uh, would give the the state of our denomination report as they should. And every year in the state of denomination report, there would be numbers that would be attached to that report, as it ought to be. We closed this many churches, we started this many churches, we had this many salvations, and so on. And one of the number stats that was given every year was this stat. Over 90% of our churches are under 200, and over 80% are under 100. And that didn't change by more than a percentage point in any given year. It came out every year virtually the same. A stat that I have found to be shockingly consistent across regions and across denominations all around the world. That is not unusual. That is typical. But every year when that stat would be given, the next sentence was always some version of, we need to fix this problem. It was assumed that that was a statement of a problem. 
Nobody ever said why it was a problem, but everybody in the room, including me, assumed that that was a problem. So for years, I would hear that, and my reaction was, oh no, I, I'm one of the problem churches. I mean, except for that one little burst where a couple years I was walking around and snapping my collar like, yeah, not me. But except for that couple years, I'd sit there and hear it, and every time I'd go, I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. They're telling me it's a part of the problem. And for a lot of seasons, I was really a part. I was under 100, not just under 200. Right? And every year would be, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And then that year I went after that collapse, and I, I did come back after the 40 days to the same church, but I was still you know, wondering what's going on, God, what's happening here? And he, he did that talk again, and he did those numbers again. And have you ever been in a room and somebody's speaking, and what they say from the front triggers a, a train of thought that you go off over here, even though the speaker's going off over here, and you don't hear anything the speaker says for the next 10 minutes? It may be happening to some of you right now. <laughs> that happened to me. I knew the next sentence would be some version of, we need to fix this problem. And that day, something in me snapped. And instead of hearing what he went on for that, I switched from, oh, no, to so what? Okay, fine. A lot of our churches are small. So what? My church is small. So what? I don't care anymore. And when somebody gets to the point where they're saying, I don't care anymore, what that means is they care so much they can't admit it to themselves anymore. And that's where I was. I was saying I don't care, but it was so deep that I couldn't even acknowledge it. But I went into, okay, fine, so what? We're small, so what? But I'm stubborn, so when I ask so what, I actually want to find out so what. So I found out so what, and here's what I discovered. That stat, 90% under 200, 80% uh, under 100, that stat not only is shockingly consistent all around the world and in every denomination you want to find, not only is it consistent, but... It is consistent in groups where the, that are in revival and in church and in groups that are in decline. Let me tell you why. If a group of churches, let's say a denomination or a fellowship of churches, whatever group, or, a, or just a region with a bunch of churches, if a group of churches is in revival and renewal, a part of the revival and renewal will be the planting of new churches. And when new churches are planted, they tend to be what size? Small. So when a group of churches is in renewal and revival, and as a part of that renewal and revival are planting new churches, the percentage of small churches remains high because they're planting new churches, and those new churches are small. Likewise, when that group of churches is in decline, the existing churches within it are getting smaller, so the percentage of small to large remains high. Whether the group of churches is in revival or in decline, the number of small churches to large churches is always a big gap. That stays the same whether you're in renewal or whether you're in decline. Those numbers on their own, while it's important to know them, cannot stand on their own to give you any understanding about the health of the churches in question. It's not enough information. So we have to, we have to frame it correctly and accurately. So I went through that, so what? And then after, I, I actually stayed in so what a little too long. You know, you don't want to stay in so what too long. I had to go through so what, but I had to go through so what. I had to find something on the other side of so what. And here's what I found on the other side of so what. Now what? All right, our church is small. Now what? What are we going to do? I remember the day sitting with our staff, and it was, it was about a year or two after this collapse, and I was beginning to feel, you know, healthy again and moving forward again. And I started talking about getting the numbers up again. That, that, that old bear came back in again. And halfway through a sentence about getting the numbers up, I stopped myself mid-sentence and said, no, that's it. I'm not going back there again. And then I looked at my staff and volunteers and I said, we got to stop thinking like a big church. And their jaws hit the floor because that's the slogan of the church growth movement is if you want to be a big church, you got to think like a big church. I said, we have to stop thinking like a big church for one reason and one reason only. Because we're not one. Instead of thinking like a big church, we need to think like a healthy small church. What does a healthy small church look like? And you know what? No one in the room, including me as the pastor, knew how to answer the question, what does a healthy small church look like? I thought 90% of our churches qualify for that, and we don't know what a healthy one looks like. There's a big gap in our pastoral leadership teaching. 
And that's where the book and everything else came from. I said, I've got to find this out. And I, I, if, if I had been able to find my book, I would not have written my book. I only wrote it because I was finding bits and pieces and nobody had put it together in one place, at least not that I could find. So I started asking, now what? And out of this, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Um, there's a great movie, Apollo 13 is a movie about Apollo 13. What was supposed to have been the third moon landing, and partway to the moon, they have damaged their spacecraft, and what was going to be an exploratory mission turns into a rescue mission. They have to figure out how to get the three astronauts back to Earth alive. And one problem after another problem happens. And at one point, they rush in and they go, we're just about out of air filters. And the guy goes, how can we send them up without enough air filters? He said, well, there's a bunch of filters in the landing module, but they didn't use that, so they've overused the ones where they are. He said, well, then the landing module is still attached. Have them go into the landing module, get it, bring it over. He said, they've done that. The filters in the landing module are a completely different shape and size, and they don't fit into where they are. To which the engineer goes, oh, tell me this isn't a government program. And then the very next scene is an a couple engineers take a couple large boxes of material and they dump it out on a big table. And then essentially what they say is this, what's on this table is what's on Apollo 13. So, using only what's on this table, we have to figure out how to fit this into this, even though it's not made for it. Nothing on this table is designed to do the job. The clock is ticking, and if we don't do it on time, they die, get the job done. I do not know a better description of what it's like to pastor a small church than that. <laughs> really? This is the stuff you gave me. That's, this, this, this is the material I have to work with. Mm -hmm. That's my Apollo 13 table mess. That's my material. The mission has not changed. Clock is ticking. Lives are at stake. Get the job done. Am I right? Yeah. There's a wonderful saying in business now, and it's made its way into church, and appropriately so. It's a good saying. It's out of a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And the saying is, you got to get the right people on the bus. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, yeah? It, it, it makes sense. What they're saying is when you're putting together a leadership team, make sure you got the right people on the leadership team because one wrong person in one wrong spot, the whole thing can, can fall apart. The challenge when you're in a small church is get the right people on the bus. These are my people. This is my bus. You're acting like I have choices here. <laughs> I have no choices here. I have an Apollo 13 table mess. There's nothing right about this. You know, what you call the wrong people, I lovingly call my church members. Right? That's the way it is in a smaller church, which is now how we get to the why is my church so weird part. Why? Because your church is an Apollo 13 table mess. This is what you got. In the bigger churches, they can hire somebody. We don't have enough for that. Let's hire somebody. Well, why don't you? Uh, this is my material. Right? We, we've got, we're doing it in, in, a, in a completely different way. So let's take a look at this Venn diagram because this is going to help frame everything we'll talk about for the rest of the day. I, I, worked, I wanted to come up with a simple visual that would show the differences between big and small churches, but every time I found one in a book or in a conference, it was either a stair step or a ladder. So it was a church of 50, 100, 200, 500, 1,000. And if you see a visual of stair step or ladder with small on the bottom, big on the top, what immediately emotionally do you feel about the difference between the ones on the top and the ones on the bottom? Better, worse, right? That may not be their intention, but that's what that physical illustration, that's how it hits us. So I wanted to come up with an illustration that was simple, but that didn't leave us with that sense of better or worse. So the Venn diagram fills the bill real well. So on the left, you've got big church principles, and on the right, you've got small church principles. And here's the way it goes. The bigger your church is, the more it will overlap with other big churches. And the smaller your church is, the less it will overlap with, other, with big churches. That's all. More overlap less overlap. So the bigger your church gets, the more help you will get from big church conferences, big church podcasts, and big church books. The smaller your church is, the less help they can offer you. And it's not because they're wrong, and it's not because you're stupid. It's because your circles don't overlap very much. You're in different circles. You're in different circumstances. 
So the smaller your church is, the less overlap you have with the bigger churches. Now, there will always be an overlap because there will always be certain things that every single church needs to do. So don't jump too quickly to the small church. Understand here are the commonalities in all churches everywhere. And then let's do what we're doing today, which is the circle on the right. Let's get together with other small church, church leaders and, and find out what we share in common. So the, the essential principle behind this is that many church, big church principles simply don't translate well into a small church context. Again, they're not wrong. They're not teaching bad things. They are simply teaching things in a different circle than ours. So we're not stupid if we don't catch it. But here's the challenge. I was never taught this. So I would go to the big conferences, and I would hear the stuff, and I'd take it all home and say, we're going to do this because this is what works, not knowing that two-thirds to three-quarters of it weren't going to fit in my context because nobody told me that. It got to the point where my congregation members dreaded every time I was going to go to a conference. I'd come home with an answer, and they'd go, what book did you read now? Right? Because every time we do it, three-quarters of the, of, of the things would fail. Why? Because it didn't overlap with our circle. But I didn't know that. And even if I had known there was some overlap, nobody gave me a filter so that I could say, this applies, that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't, but this does. So by the end of the session, not only are you now going to know that there's a difference, but we're going to give you a filter by which you can now, after this session, when you pick up a, a book by a big church pastor or go to a conference for big churches, you will have a better understanding of how to filter out the things that won't apply in your context and keep the things that will apply in your context. So you can get more value even out of the big church context because you'll only take it from the part that overlaps. Make sense? So that's what we're going to look at today. So the rest of the day, we're going to talk about stuff in the right circle that doesn't overlap with the main circle, because that's the stuff we typically don't get anywhere else. So we're going to talk about the stuff that all small churches have in common. Now, in addition to that, I'm going to add these dots. Now, these dots have three particular characteristics that matter. Characteristic number one, they, have, they are different colors and shades. Characteristic number two, they're of different sizes. And characteristic number three, and most, uh, the one that matters the most for our context today, is none of them touch. And here's why none of the small circles touch. Each one of these small circles represents the part of your church that is different from any other church on the face of the earth. So in your congregation, you will have things that happen that happen in every single church, the part that overlaps. You will have things that happen in your church that all small churches have in common, the brown part of the right circle. But then, in small churches, you've got to master a third thing. You've got to figure out why my church is weird. So, and here's, here's the interesting contrast. The smaller your church is, the bigger the weird part is. The bigger the unique part is. Now, don't jump to the unique and say, we're no different from every other church on earth. Yes, you are in some ways, but first of all, figure out what you have in common with all churches. Secondly, figure out what you have in common with other small churches, because what you think may be unique to your environment may not be. It may actually be in common with other small churches. So once you have those, and then what's left over, you go, okay, this is just about what's us. Now, why is that the case? Why is it? It's because of something called the law of large numbers. And this is something that I discovered in my reading outside of the church leadership circle because it's not being taught within the church leadership circle. The law of large numbers is a sociological phenomenon that says the larger the crowd is, the more predictably it behaves. This is how every polling company works. So you got an election coming up in Australia. They give you a polling and they say, this, you know, this person is likely to lead this person, right? And, and, and they're surprisingly accurate most of the time. We always love pointing out when they miss it, but... They're, you know, they're, and, and then you go, what do you mean Australia thinks this? Nobody asked me. They don't have to ask you. They don't have to ask me. Here's the deal. If you ask the right question of the right demographic mix of people, and here's the key for us today, and if you have a minimum sample size, all you have to do is add zeros, and it will be correct within two to three point margin of error. The minimum sample size is really important for this. You have to survey, let's say, five to 7,000 Aussies before you can start adding zeros. You can't interview five to seven Aussies. 
That's not enough. It's below minimum sample size. Why? Because when the group is small, the individual characteristics and the individual personalities skew the final results too much. So anybody who's in the science of surveying, they all know this. It's called minimum sample size. And it's based on the law of large numbers. So big churches are above the minimum sample size. They behave more predictably. How many of you have ever attended a worship service at a megachurch? Raise your hand. It's okay. It's not a sin. You're allowed. Okay. Then you've, been to, then, then you've been to every megachurch. What I mean by that is, there are certain things that large churches have in common, and they are the same in every one of them. When Shelley and I are going to a conference, and we know it's going to be at a big church, we have certain expectations about what's going to happen, and they are met every single time. We know there will be this kind of parking, this kind of signage. We know there's going to be you know, this kind of age, age departments for the kids. We know that there's going to be a, a greeter here. And there's going to be, we know, and there are certain things that they all do. Why? Because once you're above minimum sample size, the crowds behave predictably. There are certain systems you have to have in place in order to manage the flow of that many people. And so they share that information. It works across the board because once you hit minimum sample size. So here's how it works in teaching. If you pastor a church of 2,000 and you attend a conference by someone who's pastoring a church of 20,000, you can take virtually everything they do, drop a zero, and do it in your church because the circles virtually overlap. That's slightly oversimplified, but not by much. Because once you, at 2,000, you have multiple staff, you have multiple age departments, you probably have multiple site, you have the audio, you have the visual, you have a large staff, you have finances, and you just have 10 times more of that in a church of 20,000. So 20,000 down to 2,000, drop a zero and do it. 2,000 down to 200, drop a zero and do it? No, not anymore. Because at 200, things have changed. At 200, you may not have multiple staff. You may not have a single full-time pastor. At 2,000, the answer to greeting is you got to have, you, you, you have greeters in your parking lot. And at 200, you're going, you got to have a parking lot? Right? All of a sudden, all the things that are simply assumed as a at a larger size, you may not have at all. So it, it changes. And then you go to 200 down to 50, and it changes again. And then you can have two churches of 50 of the same denomination, in the same town, on the same street, and you might as well be on two different planets. Why? Because they got 50 different people here than the 50 different people over here. Now, I know what you're thinking, but the 2,000 church over here has 2,000 different people than the 2,000 church over there. True. But once you hit minimum sample size, and I don't know exactly where that is, but at 2,000, you're definitely there, that the, the, the unique people in those things, the numbers kind of flatten out the personalities. But in 50, those personalities are not flat. They are sharp. <laughs> right? So you got those two churches of 50. Why are they like different planets? Because in this church of 50, when they lose one family, say goodbye to your entire children's ministries department. Because they didn't just take the workers, they took all the kids. Right? And in this church of 50, when that one person that we all love doesn't happen to show up for church on one Sunday morning, we all breathe a little easier because now we're not going to have that awkward confrontation in the hallway, at least for one Sunday. And don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Because every one of you has a name and face in mind right now, and don't pretend you don't. Right? Here's the rule. Every church has one. And if your church doesn't have one, some other poor church has two. There are days I'm convinced that there are three churches near us without one. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Now, the Church of 2000 has one of those interesting folks, too, but that just means the pastor gets a weird email once a week. It's not a big deal, because the size of the crowd flattens out the personality quirks. But in a church of 50, that one person can ruin your Sunday. They can split your church. They can push the pastor out of full-time ministry. That one person can have a big impact. Because here's the flip side of the law of large numbers. Law of large numbers, the bigger the crowd, the more predictably it behaves. The other side of that coin is this. The smaller the crowd, the more impact each person has for good and for bad. Impact is what happens. Okay, let's take a look at that. We talked about the bad, right? 
that one person in 50 can ruin the Sunday. But there's also a good impact that people can have in a small church. I want you to imagine that you play a little guitar and you show up at Hillsong. And you look at the stage where they're singing the newest song from their latest album. And you go, I am never getting on that stage, am I? No, you're not. Wouldn't be good for you, wouldn't be good for them. Wouldn't be good for anybody if you just play a little guitar. But if you play a little guitar and you show up at a church of 50, you'll be leading in worship in a month. <laughs> right? In fact, who, it, doesn't, it doesn't need a month. If they find out you play guitar, the question is going to be, is the guitar in your car now? <laughs> no time whatsoever, you are up. And this is one of the reasons people attend small churches, because they can have an impact there that they can't have in a larger crowd. Okay? There are certain skills and gifts and callings that can be used in a small church context that simply cannot be used in a big church context. And it's not because the big churches are turning anybody away, and it's not because the small church skills are lesser value. They're simply different circles. For instance, Shelly and I were at a conference a while ago at a big church, and the pastor afterwards wanted to show me around because they'd just done a big renovation, big church, about 3,000 people. They'd spent like $150,000 on a massive renovation, which per person was actually a very good deal, and it wasn't ostentatious. It was simply long overdue. They painted everything. They moved a few walls. They got a whole new graphic design. They got new carpet, all kinds of stuff. It was a, they spent that $150,000 really, really, really well. And they showed me through, and it was great. And then I thought, you know what? That's not how it's done in a small church. In a small church, when you want things you know, to look a little differently, here's what it is. You have two or three ladies in your church who decorate their house nicely. And three or four times a year, they go into the back shed or the attic or the basement or the storage room of your church, and they pull out all of the fall decorations or all the Christmas decorations or all the Easter decorations or all the summer decorations, and they lay them all out, and they toss out the ones that have been used too often or got broke since last year. And then they go to Target and get a few new ones to add to it. And they decorate the lobby and they decorate the sanctuary nicely. You know what? They are contributing to the ministry of that small church and that gift could not be used in a big church context. And the big church is not wrong for hiring a design firm. Because the person who decorates their house nicely is not appropriate to redesign the big church. You need to hire a professional design firm for that. But the small church cannot afford, nor does a small church need, the professional design firm. You need a couple people who know how to decorate their house nicely, who will take care of that for you three or four times a year. And their gifts are used in a small church context. They have more impact. That's a big part of the reason people choose to go to smaller churches, because I feel needed here. And I go to the big church, and I'm not needed there. And again, nobody's wrong. The big church isn't wrong for not needing that gift. And the, small, and the small church isn't lesser because they can use that gift. It's simply different circles. So we need to take care of that. We need to be aware of it. Now, let me give you a filter by which we can determine some of the differences between big and small churches so that from now on you can even learn when you're hearing from big church pastors and take more from it. This is what help, now helps me to, to, to uh, apply a good filter so that I can learn even from big church pastors a little better. Big church principles center on principle, on process, systems, and programs. And when I mean big church principles, I don't mean that that's what matters to the church. What matters to the church is what matters to us. It's, it's about worship, and it's about ministry, and it's all the things that matter to us. But when the leaders get together, they spend their time talking about process and systems and programs. Why? Because if the process, systems, and programs break down when you've got a church of a couple thousand, everything falls to pieces. So it's very process-driven, and appropriately so for their size. That is not the primary concern when you're in leadership in a smaller church. In a smaller church, the principles of leadership tend to concentrate on relationships, culture, and history. Now, it's good to have good process systems and programs in place in a, in a smaller church, but they come second place to these other three, to relationships, culture, and history. So let me walk you through each of those three. First of all, relationships. Every once in a while, I'll have a small church pastor ask me, is there a discipleship curriculum that you recommend for smaller churches? And my answer is, pretty much whatever works for you. Now, how can I be so nonchalant about it? Well, here's why. 
I don't know your church. And the smaller the church is, the bigger that unique part is. And so what will work in my small church may not work in your small church. It's going to be different. So that's, that's it. Secondly, curriculum is not the way we should approach discipleship in a smaller church. The way we should approach discipleship anywhere, but it especially applies in a smaller church, is the best system ever devised for discipleship. It's the one that was used by Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, and by the early church. It's a system called mentoring. And at the center of mentoring is relationship. If you think you've been mentored, but you don't have a relationship with your mentor, you have not been mentored, you've been taught. You might have been taught well, but you were not mentored. I've had people call me their mentor, and I've never met them. They've just read my stuff. I'm not their mentor. I don't know them. They may feel like they have a relationship with me, and that's great. And maybe they've learned from what I've written, and that's wonderful. That's why I write it. But let's call it what it is. It's teaching. It's not mentoring. And here's the deal. In a small church, we don't have to mentor. We get to mentor because we can have a relationship with the people. So it starts and ends with a relationship. When you ask people who attend small churches why they attend them, and I've asked this question of hundreds of small church attenders, why do you attend a small church? The number one answer they give is this. The pastor knows my name. There's a whole group of people out there who feel the need to be pastored by their pastor. Bunch of freaks. But that's how they're sometimes treated, aren't they? How dare you want to be pastored by your pastor? Don't you know that your pastor has more important jobs to do than pastoring? What? Now, if the church grows so big that you can no longer have direct access that you're used to having, and you try to, you try to stifle the growth and effectiveness of your church because you've got to have access, then we've got a problem. But people who intentionally go to a smaller church so that they can have a relationship with the pastor, they're not wrong for wanting that. And let's quit treating them like they're wrong for that. Mentoring, and it doesn't all happen to have, have, have to happen by the pastor. Again, we'll get into that in the sessions after. How do the pastor start handing off that mentoring process to others? We'll get into that after lunch. But this is why I was actually having a conversation with two... I was, I was on a podcast, actually, with um, Carrie Newhoff and Reggie Joyner. And they are two really big church folks. And they've been very friendly and kind to me. And we were having a conversation on a podcast... And at one point, Carrie Newhoff said, as a pastor, I've really got to refine my pastoral ministries, uh, my, my preaching skills, because for most of the people in that room, the only access they're going to have to me during the week is what I preach. So that's why pastors really need to preach well and spend more time on their preaching. And he was going to go on, and I paused and I, I, paused and I interrupted Carrie, and I said, Carrie, what you said is absolutely true for a church of your size. But in a smaller church, my preaching is going to be a much smaller percentage of my interaction with the congregation. My interaction with most of the congregation, far more hours are going to be in small groups and in one-on-one, -on -one, hanging out in the lobby afterwards, because it's a small group of people and I know them. So in a small church, small church pastors, if you have to sacrifice an hour of study or an hour of actually being with people that you're mentoring, sacrifice the hour of study and spend time mentoring your congregation members. I know what I just said, and I mean it. I'm not, I'm not in favor of bad preaching. not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the emphasis shifts from teaching the crowd to mentoring the people. That's what, now, what we often do with curriculum is we bring curriculum in, and we use it to replace mentoring. And a lot of times we say we're mentoring people or discipling them. We're not discipling them. We're just getting them finished with the classes. Curriculum is helpful, for two things. Curriculum is helpful to keep people with inside theological guardrails, and it's helpful to keep a timestamp so you don't spend too much time in one spot and get bogged down. So if we've got a mentoring process and you've trained other people to mentor other people, by all means, if a curriculum will help them, have them use a curriculum. Keep them within theological guardrails and give them timestamps so the thing moves along. But it should all be done in the context of relationship. If relationship is not at the core of it, it's not mentoring. And the primary way that we disciple people in a smaller church is through relationship. So concentrate on the relationship. Make that priority. The second thing that matters huge in a small church is culture. Now, culture matters in the big church, too. There's a lot of teaching in church leadership circles about culture, and here's what you typically hear from the left circle. 
What you typically hear from the left circle of the big church is, pastor, you and the staff will establish your culture, you will set the culture, you will drive the culture. It will come from you. And if you don't set it, if you don't establish it, if you don't keep repeating it and you don't drive it, it won't happen. It's got to come from you. If you are in a smaller church, and especially if the church has been around for a while, and especially if you are newer or younger in that church, if you try to establish, set, and drive the culture, God bless you at your next church. <laughs> That's not how it works in a smaller church. Unless you are the founding pastor of the church, and you're setting the culture. If you come into an existing church, especially if you are new and especially if you are young, but even in a small church in general, if you've been around for a while, the culture is already established in the church. Now, what do I mean by culture? I don't mean the surface things like one church is casual and another church is traditional. That's, that's surface. I'm, the culture is this. Here's the definition of culture. It's the unwritten set of rules that governs everything a church does. The unwritten set of rules that governs everything a church does. So when somebody in church goes, well, that's just the way we do it here, that's a statement of culture. They don't even know they're making a statement of culture, but that's what they're doing. That's just the way, the culture is just the way we do it here. Now, in a big church context, yes, that is driven by the pastor and by the staff. But in a small church, it's not. In a, in a small church, here's what the small church pastor needs to do. And the newer you are, the more this applies. And the older the church is, the more this applies. And the younger the pastor is, the more this will apply but it applies in all small churches. In a small church, the way you lead the culture, one, you have to figure out what the current culture is. Secondly, you have to show them that you appreciate the culture, or at least the parts of the culture that you do appreciate. And once they know that you understand the culture and you have some appreciation for the culture, only then will you be given limited permission to help lead the culture. Now, you may not like what I just said, but you can't deny the reality of what I just said. That's the way it is in small churches. Why? Like in our church, five pastors in 10 years. I wasn't going to walk in and establish a culture. I try something new, they're going to go, yeah, we tried the, we've tried the big answer five times with pastors who just left. We'll give you some time. And I spent seven years figuring out the culture. I've been there 27 now. So now we can go in and say, hey, we're going to do it this way. And they go, yes, sir. Because 27 years earns you some credibility. I've been there now longer than 80% of the people in the room. So that changes over time. But even then, it's got to be in line with what the culture in the church already is. So uh, we need to, again, if, if you're the, in a smaller church, you need to know what the culture is. You need to have some appreciation, and they need to see that you have an appreciation for their current culture. And then you will be given limited permission to lead the culture. And if you can't do that, then you may not be suited to small church ministry. If you're the one who just has to go in and call the shots, first of all, I beg you, do not become a pastor. If you have to call the shots, do not become a pastor. That's not what our job is. It doesn't work that way. And the smaller the church is, the less that applies. But that's, that's the way it works. We're working together with the body of Christ. So, uh, and, and just the, the new book, 100 Days, uh, to a healthier church deals with culture a lot. We talk about how to how to understand the culture of your church, how to um, fix it if it's a broken culture, uh, and then move on from there. And then thirdly, history. We know that small towns have long memories, and so do small churches. Long memories especially if you're coming into a long-existing small church. There is a long history and a long memory about that history. So, if you are pastoring a small church and you're trying to move it into a preferred future, but the history of the church feels more like an anchor weighing it down than a foundation on which to build, what do you do? Because the history of the church should be a solid foundation on which you build for the future. That's what it should be. But in too many of our smaller churches, the history feels more like an anchor weighing it down. I can't move ahead because they got this thing about the history of the church, and that can't change, and we're never going to be able to make it. I was, we were at a, a, a congregation in the, one of the eastern states, I think it was Pennsylvania, not long ago. And out of the back of almost all the churches are these massive cemeteries because these churches have been around for four or 500 years. And that was where they buried everybody back then. And we are fascinated by cemeteries. We just like going through, seeing the old dates and all the stuff. And Shelley made a comment about, oh, I love the cemetery. And he says, if I could tear that out, I would. 
Why? He says, because everybody who drives in, the first thing they see is the cemetery, and everything goes to back then. That is a symbol of this church that will not move into the future because we've got, literally, we've got the past buried in our backyard. And it's a real challenge for a lot of those churches. So whether you've got a cemetery in your church or not, it may feel like you've got a cemetery in your church. It's weighing you down. So how do we move away from that? How do we, how do we change our perception of the history of the church so that it becomes a foundation on which we can build? Because that's what the history ought to be. How do we get there? Let me tell you how that happened in our church, and you can take or leave or edit this forever, however it works in your church. A few years ago, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of our congregation. So we went and we got all of the old stuff out. We got old pictures out, old bulletins out, old newspaper articles, the founding documents. We brought them all out. We put them on display. And after I got them on display, I saw this newspaper article. And it was um, from the local newspaper, the giveaway newspaper, not the denominational paper, but the local community paper. And it has this awesome headline, the church can work with delinquents. Now, if you're under 40, delinquent doesn't mean they're late in paying their bills. Back in the day when kids were making a mess in the community, we called them juvenile delinquents, right? So that's what this is all about. And if you look at the first paragraph, here's what the first paragraph reads. As an institutional caseworker and probation officer, I searched for many months for a church really concerned about the needs of juvenile delinquents. Until recently, I could find none. So here's a probation officer caseworker looking for a church to partner with to help him reach at what we now today call a better term at-risk youth and no churches will help him until recently and then he talks about meeting the founding pastor of our congregation and how he says oh we'd love to help you we want to reach a new generation in a new way we want to set up a youth center we want to set up a kids center what do you need how can we help you and he talks for three pages in the community newspaper about how thrilled he is about what this new church in town wants to do to reach the kids in our community and i took that picture because as i'm looking at that newspaper article and i had been at the church at that point almost 20 years and didn't know about this. I took a picture of it because as I'm reading this, 100 and, well, less than 100 meters to my right, in our parking lot, we have run the only skateboard park in our town for the last 15 years. Now, why do we have a skateboard park in our parking lot? Here's why. Because about 15 years ago, we resurfaced our parking lot, and all of a sudden there was noise outside, and we went outside, and every skateboarder from the community was out in our parking lot <laughs> because we had the smoothest surface in town. And so my youth pastor and I realized we had a decision to make. We can either buy a whole bunch of no skateboarding signs or we can build some ramps. And we decided that churches on defense put up signs and churches on offense put up ramps. So we put up ramps. They're, in our pro they're on our property. Let's welcome them in. So I took that picture because if at any time anybody comes to me and goes, I can't believe you have a, skate, a skateboard park in the parking lot of your church, in this holy place. If the founders of the church saw that you had a skateboard park in your parking lot, they'd be appalled. And I will pull out of my pocket my phone and I'll go, really? The founders would be appalled? The church can work with delinquents. That's what the founders said. <laughs> now, I know not every skateboarder is a delinquent, but it's a higher percentage, let me tell you. <laughs> Wow! We didn't know what we were doing, and if we had, if we had, we'd have done it anyway. And in the last 15 years, more kids have come to faith in Christ, and more of their families have come to faith in Christ because of that silly skateboard park than anything else we've ever done. They were on our property already, and we said, come on in. So, what does that have to do with you? If your history of your church feels like an anchor weighing you down rather than a foundation on which to build, don't push back against the history. Go deeper into it. Find your church's founding documents. You know what you'll do? You'll find statements like, the church can't work with delinquents. You'll find statements like, we want to start a new church for a new generation and do things in a new way for Jesus. What you will not find in your church's founding documents are statements like, we are called to worship Jesus on this color of carpet until Jesus comes again. You won't find that in your founding documents. How do I know that? Because churches are not founded by sticks in the mud. Churches are founded by pioneers and visionaries, and they make pioneering and visionary statements. If they wanted to do things the way they'd already been done, they would not have started your church. They'd have stayed in their old church. 
the reason they started your church or your movement or your denomination. Right? If we've got Salvation Army, William Booth, oh my goodness, how much inspiration is there in what they did in downtown London? He's one of my heroes. The Assemblies of God, William J. Seymour. The Lutherans, Luther. You want to find some weird and crazy? Wow. So go back to the founding documents of your movement or the founding documents of your congregation, and then here's what we do. Don't do what our founders did. Think like our founders thought. Is it up there too? Oh, yeah. 37 seconds left in... Oh, that changed back. It sat there too long. He's going to make that quick adjustment back there. Don't do what our founders did. Think like our founders thought. Too often we think we are honoring the history of our church by doing the things they did in the way they did them. But here's the deal. The founders of our church changed the way they did things, and that's how your church began. The spirit should be the same. Why do we sing new songs? Because every movement of God includes new songs. It doesn't have to be all new songs. That's okay if it is. But every, move, every new move of God includes new songs. Always without exception. Look at church history. You will not find a great move of God without new songs being introduced as part of it. Why do we change our liturgy, which is the order in which we do service? Because every time there's been a great move of God, there's been a new order of service introduced, or at least new elements to the order of service. Why are we building churches like this? I walked in and I joked with Chris when I walked up to him after this building. I walked to him and I said, you call this a church building? Because it's so different than a typical church building, which I love. There's I, 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 was, I was telling somebody earlier, if I could build a church building, it would probably be really close to this, that big you know, central area which establishes so much about what we're here to do and to fellowship and so on, right? Just wonderful things. You know, they took and they adapted, but wow, what a wonderful feeling that's here. Why do we have different types of buildings now than they used to build? Because new generations are going to do it in a new way. We're going to keep to the, to the spirit of those who, who, who brought us this faith, but we're going to do it in a slightly different way then they did it. Don't do what the founders did. Think like our founders thought. And at that point, we've got some lunch. All righty. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.